Welcome to episode 127 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, leaving a trail of breadcrumbs didn't work out so well for Hansel and Gretel. So is there a better way to mark the trail that won't conflict with leave no trace principles? Then on today's top five list, Josh will share the top five things that he does on every backpacking trip. Next, we'll share a way to text your hiking partner even when you're both days away from a cell tower. And for today's backpack hack of the week, a ridiculous zero gram trail game that will keep you entertained for hours. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. So Josh, do you remember the story of Hansel and Gretel? It's actually one of the, I think it's one of the worst Grimm stories. It sure is. Weird. <laughs> so they wander out into the woods, right? Because they they ran out of food and the stepmother was like wanting to get rid of them. And so the father says, okay, I'll get rid of my kids and <laughs> sends them out into the woods with, I think, just a crust of bread or, you know, like whatever they had left. And Hansel and Gretel... In order to find their way back to their father's home, they leave little crumbs of bread along the way. So I guess that same approach of leaving breadcrumbs on the trail would probably be met with the same outcome (laughs) if we were to try it. But there are some reasons that you would want to maybe mark the trail. But is there a better way to kind of find your way back or mark the trail? Is it even appropriate to mark the trail or are you going to get in trouble for doing it? Well, I guess the first rule we can make is uh, don't mark the trail using edibles. Good point. But uh, that still leaves a lot of questions. Um, Is it appropriate, like you said? And and if so, then what should we use to mark the trail that's the least uh, impact to the trail itself? And that's not just confusing. I mean, your hiking buddies are not the only other people out there. Someone else could come along and come across your trail marking and wonder, is that meant for me? Well, I think the most common and mostly acceptable way of trail marking is something called cairns. There are these mounds of stones that mark parts of the trail that are maybe a little bit tricky to navigate. Like maybe somewhere where you're actually hiking through a lot of rocks on a creek bed or something, and you'll see these mounds of stone piled up. Well, these are somewhat controversial because some people believe that this does not follow the leave no trace principle. This is, you know, man leaving a trace of piling up these rocks. I happen to think the stones are really helpful. What else do you do if it's a a creek crossing, for example? We've run into those a lot on hikes that we've taken. You come up to the creek on one side and the trail comes to the creek bed, but the trail doesn't pick up on exactly straight across the other side of the creek. It picks up 100 yards upstream or downstream. That happens quite a lot. And if there's no marker there, how do you know? And I guess someone could say, well, you shouldn't leave cairns because they're 
unnatural, man-made structures. So the alternative that I'm thinking of is to leave nothing. And then what happens? People wander all over the place, up and down, 100 yards up and down stream, trying to find the trail. Wouldn't that leave an even greater trace? So it seems to me like the cairns at least will serve to concentrate the human impact in a certain spot, just like a groomed trail through the forest understory it does the same thing. I mean, the trail itself certainly left a trace, but it concentrates the human impact all in one spot so that we don't destroy the whole forest all around us. So cairns are a great way for trails to be marked just for the general public. What if you need to mark the trail for the group behind you or kind of as a trigger for when you come back, you know, like, oh, this is the tree where I take the left fork instead of the right fork. So you just want to kind of have something there to remind you of which direction to go. Is there a way to mark the trail that's appropriate, that wouldn't be damaging to the forest? We've had a couple hikes where our kids have ran ahead, and then we've wondered whether or not they stayed on the right path or whether they got sidetracked onto a different road or trail along the way. And they, I think, um, when they were younger, they unintentionally left markers for us, <laughs> like a Jolly Rancher wrapper. And we were so happy to see that Jolly Rancher wrapper. They didn't leave it intentionally. It fell out of someone's pocket. It was leaving litter. It was inappropriate. But it sure was a relief to us when we came along behind, because we said, oh, great, they made it to this spot. They're right. on track. <laughs> They claimed it wasn't a mistake, though. They they claimed that they left it there on purpose so that we would know that they were ahead of us. Oh, boy. Well, they're <laughs> lucky we noticed it. <laughs> uh, what other ways can you mark the trail that wouldn't be damaging to the trail? Well, we typically use sticks, either laying down some little sticks to make an arrow or kind of carving an arrow in the dirt. Yeah, we use sticks a lot. Um, yeah, and then usually I just kind of with my foot, I'll trace an arrow. And uh, I think that's fine. I don't know. It was probably one of those controversial things again, where someone's going to say, well, you're eroding the soil, you're eroding the trail. Yeah, or confusing another group that comes along after you or, or in between ah, the, the people in your group. That's a good point. You could be confusing to someone else. So you lay down some sticks, plus you carve in the dirt some some kind of initial or sign or symbol <laughs> right. that, that identifies your group. How about That's that? a good idea. Yeah, have <laughs> some kind of group symbol that you use, like something simple like a circle or the plus sign, whatever you want to use that your group has decided on. That's a great idea. Mm, yeah, maybe. You could use a pill crow. Ooh, <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there because I, don't know what I recently <laughs> read a book about punctuation. <laughs> and that little paragraph mark that you see in Microsoft Word, yeah, it's called a pill crow. Whoa. So use that. There you go. No one is going to be using that, right? No one's going to use that except for us. Oh. I guess so. What about using something like toilet paper? Take a square of toilet paper, write a little note on it, and push it onto a tree. You know, trees are kind of like Velcro and toilet paper is kind of like the soft part of Velcro. <laughs> right. I guess you do different things when you think someone's lost. That's true. If you're simply marking the way, that's one thing. But there are times where we think we've lost someone. And when we get into that mode of finding a lost hiker, 
They might not really be lost, but we think they're lost. And so we start looking for them. Then we start tracing our steps, going back and forth and down different paths. And I guess if I knew that I was going to retrace my steps back to where I left that note so that I could retrieve it, that might be something I could use. I worry about leaving a note for someone who's just going to come along behind at the end of the group because they might not even notice it. They might say, oh, man, someone's leaving some toilet paper flowers in the woods again and hike right on by. And and now we just contributed to the toilet paper problem. But if I knew I would be coming back personally very soon to retrieve it, I, I don't know, maybe. Okay, well, then another idea that I had was what about using chalk? Just like bringing a little quarter stick of chalk with you. And if you needed to write a note to someone, just sketching it onto a rock. It washes off easier than graffiti does. True. That's a fine line, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think I might do it in a lost situation, but not in just a general navigating the trail situation. Yeah, I know there were a few times on our first 40-miler trip where... You know, there was a group ahead of us, a few people behind us, and um, the road diverged. And we kind of just were wondering, well, which one of these paths should we take? And we were so grateful for those arrows and the funny notes that were written in the <laughs> trail <laughs> next to the arrows. Um, it just gave us a little bit of peace of mind. Yeah, so scratching a note into the dirt... That's probably the least impact way to go, I think. Yeah. Th that with laying down some sticks to make an arrow. Yeah, and that's the one that's probably most likely to be seen. Yeah, you're usually looking down in front of you, right in front of your feet as you hike along, and, and you'll see those things. On our Mount Jefferson trip, there was a place where the trail diverged. So, of course, Josh and I took the right trail, but the kids were way ahead of us. They had just blazed ahead. And so for, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes, I just had this unsettled feeling like, oh, what if the kids didn't take this trail? You know, what if they went on the other one? And just kind of the stress kept building up and I was worrying. And then... I saw something hanging on a tree that totally relieved my worries. I saw my son's flip-flop that he'd brought. <laughs> he hung his little sandal on a tree. I don't exactly know why he did that. I would like to think that it was because he wanted to let me know that he was okay. Glad you saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Kids will do interesting things. <laughs> And sometimes it ends up being a relief to us in, in a funny sort of way. But in the end, I suppose maybe we should ask ourselves the question, how do we prevent these situations where one part of the group doesn't know where the other part of the group went or which way is the right way to go? Right, because no matter how short the trail is, there are always these little spurs and maybe sometimes someone in the group isn't paying attention and they just happen to wander off on that spur and they're lost in their thoughts and then they end up being physically lost. So, yeah, I like the idea of prevention. And we can do that with more than just uh, marking the trail as we go with, with arrows. Maybe it's important before the trip that everyone is aware that everyone needs to be self-sufficient when it comes to navigation, that in reality, uh, we will be clumped up in groups or pairs, and that between two or three of you, you can usually stop and think about it and talk about it and figure out which way to go, but that really each individual needs to be prepared for the possibility that they will be entirely alone when they get to a trail junction and they need to know, like know for certain with a map 
and a compass or GPS exactly which trail it is that they're supposed to take. And not get too complacent about just relying on kind of following the footsteps of whoever was in front of them. We still have a long ways to go on that with our kids, I think. And it's especially important now because as they get older, they get faster and they start running ahead. And they can get miles ahead of us. And then we come up to a trail junction and we know which way to go. But we don't know that they went that way. Well, we've talked about our experience with our own children, but this has happened with adults that we've hiked with. And so just because you're an adult doesn't mean that you are immune to getting lost on the trail or becoming separated from your group. I hope some of these trail marking ideas can help. But I think, Josh, you're right on that you need to have a plan in place. Everyone needs to know basic navigation skills and know how to get from point A to point B. And then if you do end up using some of these trail marking ideas, don't forget to undo what you do. In episode 122, I shared my top five things that I do on every single trip. And so this week we're giving Josh the microphone and we're going to let him share the top five things that he does on every single backpacking trip. And number one on my list is sort of a ritual, I think you could say. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. We arrive at camp and I do the camp dance, campsite dance, campsite selection (laughs) dance. (laughs) What's it called? (laughs) That sounds good. (laughs) Okay. So we come into camp. We know we're going to stay in this general proximity. And I start kind of walking around and kind of squatting down so I can see how level and flat the ground is. I'm looking for roots. I'm looking for low spots that are going to gather water. And I'll spend, what would you say, 15 minutes? (laughs) Yeah, it feels like about 15 minutes because that's about when I say, let's just pick a site. Come on. Yeah, I'm hungry. Time for dinner. (laughs) Maybe it's not 15 minutes, but it feels like it to Heather uh, (laughs) as I do this sort of ritualistic um, dance around the campsite, trying to find the perfect spot either for the tent or for hammock camping. It's looking at trees and, you know, distance between trees. I do a slightly different ritualistic dance, but same kind of thing. Same idea. So I'm curious, where did you learn this little dance from this uh, ritual? Oh, I don't know. I mean, when I grew up in Scouts, of course, they taught us all of the the things to be aware of when you're picking a campsite. So avoiding a low spot that could puddle up with water, avoiding sharp rocks sticking out of the ground um, or roots. Um, you don't want it to be too sloped, but maybe a little bit of a slope is good for drainage. Uh, you know, they taught us all those things. I don't know how I developed this very extensive um, implementation of those principles. Yeah, you internalized those principles really well. I guess so. And we always have the best campsites, so it works. Or at least the best available. Well, the number two thing that I do on every trip is I take lots of side trips. I'm just not content with coming into camp and plopping down and spending all my time there and then heading out the next day. I just, I can't do that. (laughs) So as soon as I get into camp and I get things set up, I'm ready to just head back out. I want to take a side trip, whether it's around the lake or it's up the peak and back, or sometimes it's just hiking a little further down the trail. I, I find it impossible to turn around. I'm always like, what's around the next corner? What's over the next hill? To stop at camp and to know that the trail continues beyond camp and that I might not see 
what's down there? Reality is that it usually ends up looking about the same as what I saw on the trail coming into camp. But that doesn't matter. I just love getting out, putting some miles on my legs, especially when I don't have a full pack on and I can just cruise. And it just feels very, I get that feeling of freedom. I love that, having no boundaries and just striking out to see what's out there. And the number three thing I do on every trip is photography. I've just always loved it. From the time I was a kid, when I was in Scouts, I always brought a camera with me. You know, back when not everyone had cameras. But I always brought a camera to document my trip, to take pictures of things I found interesting. Perhaps it's because it helps me to see what's around me, to really see it. To stop and, and frame things up and really recognize the beauty that's around me. Maybe that's it. But I would have a hard time leaving the camera home. Maybe I could substitute with some sketching, since we've recently picked that up. Because I guess that would have the same effect, right? Of helping me to really slow down and uh, notice what's around me. Well, photography really is an important thing to you. On a recent hike that we did with our family, the camera ended up getting lost on the trail. There were a few things that happened on that trip that we'll talk about in an upcoming episode, but the drive home was very somber. It was a big downer for me. Yeah. I took some pictures with my cell phone, but I knew the pictures on the camera are gone. So yeah, I think photography is really an important way for you to process the trip, for you to live it in the moment when you're on the trip and then relive it again when you come home. The number four thing that Josh does on every single trip, and I actually picked this one because it's something that I've noticed him do on every single trip, and that is he spends a good portion of the trip helping the kids to learn. And this isn't just like him sitting down and saying, this is a Douglas fir, this is a pine tree. It's, it's more, um, I guess usually these teaching moments start with, here, let me help you fill in the blank. And a lot of these teaching opportunities can come from something that the kids are naturally interested in. They might find a, a really interesting plant. And then that's an opportunity to tell them a little bit about that plant, if, if I know something about it, and to give a little more detail and depth than what they might just see from looking at the plant. It really makes the whole experience more enriching. Yeah, you get dad points for that. You're really good at that. <laughs> Thanks. And then the last thing that Josh does on every single trip is he does a last and final sweep of the camp. I think part of it is he doesn't want to lose any gear and he wants to leave no trace. So a little bit of both. But yeah, you're really good at making sure we are all packed up. And there is no question that I learned this one in scouts. We did it on every scout trip. We'd form the line, you know, you, you kind of you get like elbow to elbow and you walk across the camp slowly looking down at the ground and whatever's in front of you that's not natural, you pick it up. And so your troop can clear the camp. You know, it, it's fast and thorough. You've covered every square inch as you walk across the campsite. Sometimes I get the family to do that, but even if I don't, I spend a minute or two <laughs> just, you know, walking circles and, and up and down and back and forth across camp to try to find any trace of man-made stuff that we brought or that someone else left for that matter. And you're right, sometimes I find gear. <laughs> and like, oh, I'm really glad I did that final sweep of camp. <laughs> so is there anything that we left off the list? Any last minute additions of things that you do on every single trip that you want to share? 
there's got to be, uh, but I don't know what. So we got to take another trip, and I'll ask myself that question. We'll see what comes up. Sounds good. For today's Summit Gear Review, we'll be reviewing the Go Tenna. Sometimes on the trail, people want ways to communicate with each other. Just, you know, a simple text saying, we arrived, or we're stuck back here at the lake. Not stuck. <laughs> you wouldn't be stuck <laughs> at the lake. We've chosen to be stuck at this beautiful spot. We <laughs> exactly. don't want to leave. <laughs> yes, we're back here at the lake. So Go Tenas are an off-grid texting and GPS device that work through your cell phone. It's basically an antenna that you hang off the back of your backpack, and then it makes it so your phone can send texts to people who are within the range of your Gotenna. So you can use your smartphone to send these texts and GPS locations even when there's no cell coverage for days. These Gotennas are essentially like having a walkie-talkie, except that it interfaces through your cell phone and you don't have any voice communication, but it's using that sort of a signal, like a FRS or GPRS signal, to communicate from one Gotenna to the other. And it's using your cell phone as the interface, so you're sending text messages back and forth or coordinates back and forth using those signals. Yeah, so you can send a message one-to-one so with your other hiking partner, or you can actually broadcast to any Gotenna within range. So that would be really useful if there were some kind of injury, or if you found a piece of gear on the trail and you just wanted to broadcast really quickly, you know, hey, here's what's up. Can anyone help? Or does anyone know who this tent pole belongs to? Uh, it's a great way to communicate. So how exactly does the Gotenna work? The Gotenna pairs with your smartphone using Bluetooth, and it uses a form of Bluetooth called low-energy Bluetooth. I think that most recent phones uh, support low-energy Bluetooth. I know we've had a couple phones that are years older that didn't support Bluetooth LE, is what it's called. Um, but there's an app that helps you do all of the setup and pairing and really everything you're going to do with the Gotenna, you do through this app. So I downloaded the Gotenna app and installed it on my phone. And I thought that Gotenna did a good job of walking you through the initial setup process. Because some apps, you install them, and then it's like, well, welcome, go ahead and use me. And you're like, well, I've never used this app before. What am I supposed to do next? Uh, but they did a good job of setting up this initial uh, setup and configuration. So it tells you step by step, okay, now pull the Gotenna so that it turns on, and it should show you a flashing LED light. Now we're going to ask you for permission to access Bluetooth, I think, and to access location services on your phone, you know, those things. So it walks you through each permission that it's going to ask for on your phone. So you're not surprised when your phone says, Gotenna app wants to use fill in the blank. And so they did a good job of walking through that process. And it said, okay, now make sure there's no other unpaired Gotennas that are turned on so we can find the right Gotenna that you want to pair your phone with. It walked through that and it said, okay, it's paired. Um, the light should have turned off on your Gotenna. You know, it really does a good job walking you through that to set things up. Um, once I got it paired with my phone, it did need to install a firmware update for the Gotenna itself. So it was applying some new firmware onto the Gotenna device. And that took about 15 minutes. I just had to let my phone sit there with the Gotenna on and let it do its thing for 15 minutes. I'm not sure how often they do firmware updates or if it's really kind of a one-time thing. Uh, once that was over, then I was ready to go. You turned on your phone and your Gotenna app with your Gotenna. 
Yours has the purple strap and mine has the orange strap so we can tell them apart. And once yours was paired and you had downloaded the firmware update, then we were able to start sending messages to each other from one foot away from each other. <laughs> but that was our initial test. <laughs> like, okay, we got them paired and we can send messages back and forth while we sit here at the kitchen counter. <laughs> So once our devices were paired and we had entered each other as a contact and we had sent a message back and forth, we explored the options a little bit. And I noticed that there's an option where I can request your location and your phone will pop up with a message saying, Josh wants to know your location. Is that okay? And you can hit okay. Or you can turn on a setting that says that you'll just auto reply to all location requests. And when that happens, then whenever I request your location, your Gotenna app automatically sends your location to me and I can view it on a map. Uh, we did have to download maps for offline use. You don't have to if, if you're not going to use them offline, but why would you need a Gotenna if you're not going to be offline? So you can pre-download the maps for areas where you know you'll be. And we downloaded the map for the state of Oregon. So the entire state is ready for offline use now. In addition to location requests, I could uh, choose to send you my location, like of my own choosing. And then, of course, just text messages back and forth, just typing them out. The GoTenna works with the iOS 8.4 and higher or Android 4.3 and higher. And for mass, the GoTenna weighs about 1.8 ounces or 52 grams. So they're going to be a lot lighter than a walkie-talkie or even your phone. And the GoTenna measures about half inch by one inch by six inches when it's closed, and then eight and a half inches long when it's open or on. So it's roughly the size of a Butterfinger bar. Yeah, a skinny Butterfinger. Yeah, skinny Butterfinger. That's a good comparison, I guess. <laughs> Maybe about the same weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. So I think if you're trying to decide between walkie-talkies or Gotennas and weight is a consideration, then Gotenna easily wins out. It's much smaller, much slimmer, and also much lighter than a walkie-talkie if you don't count the weight of your cell phone, which I don't because I'm bringing my cell phone no matter what. Even though in episode one of this podcast, <laughs> we said you could consider leaving your cell phone home. Oh, dear. <laughs> We're going to bring it anyway, though. See, we flip-flop on so many things. It's okay. It's all a journey. We're learning as we go. As far as maintenance goes, Gotenna's charge with micro-USB. Gotenna's aren't waterproof, but they are weatherproof and water-resistant. So it's okay if they get wet, but it is not okay to submerge the Gotenna's. And they are dustproof. For investment, you buy the Gotenna's in pairs. But you don't have to stop it, too. You could have four Gotennas all communicating with each other, but they come in pairs, and those pairs cost $150, so that works out to $75 per device. And it looks like they have a 15% military discount on their website. Cool. For trial, we've already covered the setup experience, which I thought was really quite good, how they walked you through that initial setup in the app. And then we left a Gotenna in one place with one of our phones, and the two of us took off with the other Gotenna and the other phone. And we actually took off on our bikes so that we could do this testing a little faster. <laughs> and, well, here were the results. When we were somewhere between an eighth and a quarter mile away, yeah. and I had the Gotenna in my coat pocket against my chest, and I was facing away from the other Gotenna. So, in other words, my body was kind of blocking the signal, potentially. And I tried to ping the other Gotenna, 
and it failed. And then I turned around and it worked. So already in just an eighth to a quarter mile, we were seeing that it's pretty easy for interference to happen or, or for a signal to get lost. So for the rest of our testing, I not only tried it with the Gotenna against my body, but then I would also take the Gotenna out and hold it up in the air above my head and test it out. And to be fair, Gotenna says that the best placement for the Gotenna is on the back of your backpack. So you shouldn't be holding it against your body. You should have it kind of out more in the open. But I think, yeah, it's important to note that holding it up high in the air actually gives you really great service. So yeah, even in just that short distance that we traveled, we noticed that it was kind of sensitive to um, to interference. Yeah, so if we held the Gotenna out away from my body up in the air, then we were pretty good up to three quarters of a mile, almost a mile. Uh, once we got to the point where we were a little over a mile, our signal gave out. And no matter how I held the Gotenna, I wasn't able to connect with the other Gotenna. This experience clearly is going to vary on so many, so many variables. How many trees, how thick are the trees, <laughs> how many buildings, or how many hills, how much rock. Obviously, mountaintop to mountaintop, you're going to get a totally different experience. Oh, yeah, like up to 26 miles or something. It's crazy. Yeah, under perfect conditions, you could get super long transmission range. Uh, but in the typical environment, well, what's typical? Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> Here in Oregon, the typical environment is that it's hilly with lots of trees. So all that wood and all that rock and all that ground is going to absorb those signals pretty quickly. In a desert environment, then you might frequently have the sorts of situations where you can literally see each other and be a couple miles away from each other. So this all brings me around to ask, can I communicate further with the Gotenna than I could communicate with a whistle? I think it's important to remember that a mile is a lot longer than we think. I mean, we tested these out using our bikes, and so, you know, a mile is just it just breezed by. But when you're hiking and you're in rough terrain, a mile on the trail is longer than a mile on the road. Yeah, you're right. And then even on top of that, a mile as the crow flies could be two or three miles on the trail as it switchbacks and goes around things and up and down. And so, you know, if you look at it that way, well, the Gotenna would allow me to communicate with people that might be one to two to even three miles down the trail. It might just be a one mile range through the air, but it might cover two or three miles of trail. Now, that's sounding pretty good because on a backpacking trip, say that you've planned a 10-mile day. Well, then if you're in the middle of that day and you could communicate up to three miles ahead of you and up to three miles behind you, you've actually covered almost half of the trail with your kind of bubble of communication mm -hmm. capability. Yeah. So range, of course, is the most important thing to trial. And if you're going to use Gotenna's I think you want to play around with that and really give it some good testing before you totally rely on them on a trip. I want to mention something while we're talking about range. There is a new Gotenna out called the Gotenna Mesh, which actually has a smaller range than this Gotenna, which is the original Gotenna. However, the Gotenna Mesh can bounce off of other Gotennas in the area and transmit messages. So it uses each of those Gotenna Mesh devices as like a mini cell tower. 
So that's one way that you could get increased range, but two Gotenna meshes by themselves are going to have a shorter, smaller distance range than this Gotenna that we're talking about today. Ah, so a hiking group that's really spread out, potentially the person in back could get a message sent all the way to the person in front who's five miles away because of the fact that there's a Gotenna every mile exactly. uh, along the way. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I want to mention in trial is literally their free trial. <laughs> so there's only one Gotenna app, and that's what you install, but then you unlock these features of Gotenna Plus. And when you first install the app, you get a free trial of Gotenna Plus. So your first experience using the app is with all of the features that include everything in Gotenna Plus. And then when your trial ends, you go back to the basics. Or you start paying a subscription to Gotenna Plus. $29 a year, uh, but they'll give you the first year for $9.99. At least that's what my app is telling me today. So I'm satisfied with the range that we got. I mean, I'm not going to expect 30 miles out of any communication device that we take on the trail, but I think a mile, a mile-ish is a really reasonable amount to expect on the trail. And I actually wouldn't want to be further from the other half of my group. So this really provides a great communication tool on the trail that's lightweight. We didn't even talk about the battery life, but it has a rechargeable battery that's easy to charge. It's an easy to use device and can help you communicate with your people on the trail. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, we have a game for you. This game is called, actually, I don't know what it's called, but I call it, Are You a Tree or a Pine Cone? It's just a really simple game, has kind of a Rorschach undertone to it. It's also one of those no winner, no loser games that I love. Uh, your favorite kind. <laughs> yes. But what makes this game great is that you can keep it going the whole time you're on the trail. So here's how you play. You ask your hiking friend, are you a tree or a pine cone? And they answer with the one that best matches who they are. They might say, I'm a pine cone because I have a rough prickly exterior and I can be a little nuts sometimes. <laughs> or it can simply be, uh, I'm a pine cone because I'm shaped like a pine cone. <laughs> I mean, any answer works, but you have to identify with one or the other. And then the game just kind of takes off from there. So Josh, are you studded tires or snow chains? And you ask the hard questions, don't you? These are, these are tough. Dig deep, Josh. Dig deep. I'm studded tires. I'm always prepared. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> so Heather, are you a shoe or a hat? See, these are tough. <laughs> That's why they're good for backpacking trips, because you can just ponder for a few minutes. You know, there's no rush. <laughs> right. Well, I'm trying to think of the benefits of both. Like, what do I relate more with? Not which one do I like more, but right. which one is a better fit for who I am? I think I'm a pair of shoes because I function best when I have my match with me, my pair. Oh, so you can go back and forth with these all day. Are you Lucy or are you Ethel? Are you skinny jeans or yoga pants? Are you a jar of mayonnaise or a bottle of mustard? Are you the Star Spangled Banner or God Bless America? Just 
anything that you want to ask, the person has to figure out which one they are. And it's a very revealing and also very ridiculous game, but it's a lot of fun. And for those of you who think that this week's Backpack Hack of the Week is the dumbest thing that you've ever heard of, here's a little trail wisdom today from William Hazlitt. He said, I cannot see the wit of walking and talking at the same time. When I am in the country, I wish to vegetate like the country. There you have it. Yeah, he laid down the law. That's right. He had the last don't, word. <laughs> don't try to strike up a conversation with William Hazlitt while he is walking. He is not a tree or a pine cone. He's a rock. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you've been on a backpacking trip, share your story at thefirst40miles.com slash story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. Today's backpack hack of the week. Uh, am I going through puberty? What is going on?